theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing really well. We have a repeat guest on our show today. Adelphio Garcia is phenomenal. He's a retired administrator and involved in so much more, I think, now than he was whenever he was an administrator. But what caught my attention most recently was his work with translanguaging. So what is translanguaging as you understand it? It's going to be limited in, and he can provide so much more context, but translanguaging is when a multilingual person's full linguistic repertoire is used and honored. That's the important thing. It's not just used and dismissed, but it's used and honored. So we don't want to narrowly focus on a single language. So as I said, Adelphio Garcia is a retired Chicago Public Schools principal, and he has not stopped working. He is on the leadership team, the Illinois Writing Project, and he conducts professional development in local school districts. And most recently, we have been talking about translanguaging. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I don't think you're quite retired. I, you're probably saying, when did I have the time to work a full-time job? I do. And, you know, I wake up every morning just saying the same thing to myself. <laughs> and we're so glad that you're taking the time to join us. So we're talking about translanguaging. And I was getting Dr. Amy's take on it. How would you define translanguaging? Well, based on my understanding from several authors, translanguaging is when a bilingual or a multilingual person uses the full linguistic repertoire from all the languages that person knows, using features from one or the other, but the baseline of that, it's having communication with other people. So to provide an example of that would be a Latinx person in having a conversation with someone that has been raised in the United States as well, I will use features of both English and Spanish because we share the same features at some point and we communicate well, because the fact of that is we just communicate with each other. If I were to speak with someone with only a monolingual perspective, for example, for someone when I spoke, when I speak to my family in Mexico, 
I speak fully in Spanish because right. English is not understandable for them. Mm -hmm. well, they know a little bit of that, but basic communication is Spanish. And it goes beyond multi-languages, right? And we've called this by other names in the past. So help us understand what is translanguaging as compared to using my casual register, or maybe that's part of translanguaging that I'm using a professional language, but I also, when I get home, I use a casual register or I code switch, right? Or if I'm using e Ebonics or an African-American dialect, are those also considered translanguaging? Yes, they are. And the fact is that it is part of your identity as a person. So language, it's a very strong part of who we are. Because when we are raised, we are raised with one language or a couple of languages or more languages. But we also are raised, depending on the region that you're growing up, is the type of language that is being used. And we learn as we grow to speak and behave differently in different social situations or even different academic situations. So just to illustrate that, for example, you know, if you go with your family to the zoo, you will have some kind of different language that you're using because you're outdoors, you're feeling confident with your family, you have conversations with others, it's more of a social language. If you were step into a museum, then your full linguistic repertoire changes right there because it's a different kind of language that you're using, behaviors, and a lot of things changes because of the social context that you're involved or engaged in. You bring up a good point about the comfort level, the, the familiarity and the family environment and where we are and how we speak and in a comfortable way, depending on where we are. So how do we open spaces for children to speak honestly and openly in whatever space that is presented to them, particularly in the classroom? That's a very interesting point. And that has a, maybe like a dissertation type of answer, because let's just start with the teacher first. Let's just start with teachers first. Let's think of what philosophy you're working from. So let's just start within ourselves. Let's say that you are just a brand new teacher into a school and you say, you know, I'm here to help. But suddenly, you know, maybe you were slotted to be in a certain grade and suddenly, you know, things change in the staffing and you're put into a classroom where you have tons of multilingual students. But if my philosophy, it is that this is America and you know we need to speak English and that's enough. Then you gotta think about all of the children that you're going to be teaching. So if you think that that is the way to go because English, as we know, is a dominant language. All the curriculums, most of them are written in English and mostly academic English. So the expectation for the teacher is to provide full English instruction. So that's from the teacher perspective. Let's go with a student's perspective. 
You as a student come in into a classroom, bringing all your background. It may not be what the teachers expect. It may not be what the school is expect, but you bring a lot of experiences. Could be language experiences, could be academic experiences, could be social experiences. You bring all of that with you. So once you step into a classroom, we go into academics, but you may not have the academic language yet, but you have a language, you have a background. So let's put those together now. If I'm a teacher and I see that the students are comfortable speaking with each other in their home language or mother, language, mother tongue, whatever you wanna call it, because we have a lot of different terms. Socially, you know, they interact, they're negotiating meaning. But if I'm strict about this is the classroom and we only speak English, then I'm thinking from a monoglossic perspective. I'm not thinking of my students. I'm thinking about me. And I'm thinking about what the social expectation of what the academic expectation is. I'm not thinking of children. I'm just, I just want the children to be fully English speakers because that's what we're aiming for and so on without thinking about what they also bring with them. So in opening up the spaces, how am I going to make children comfortable? It gets to my next question. Oh, there you go. So what does translanguaging look like in the classroom and how can we be prepared to honor it? Well, it takes a lot of courage. Also takes, you know, like opening up the spaces. Let's go back to the teachers. Let's say that you have an assignment and you provide the instruction in English and you say, okay, now it is your turn. Let's use the gradual release of responsibility. I taught it, I model it, now we do. So we do it all together, but I see some children that may or may not be fully engaged in the conversation. So I need to see if those children do have the language to speak, one. Two, I have to know if they probably have experience that might, may be similar or I can connect those experiences with. And three, when the gradual release come about and you do it and I go around and I looked at my students to see how they are negotiating the concept or the meaning of, and if I see that they're using their whole linguistic repertoire, a combination of features of English, Spanish, or Ebonics, or whatever language they use in order to make meaning of, that's my aiming. I'm looking at that. So I, as a teacher, I should not be discouraging that type of conversation, that type of negotiation, that type of engagement with each other, because the end point is for students to grasp the concept and learn to see what it is. My job as a teacher then is to bring the students, use the student language and bring the students to a new academic language. So this is how you say it. Here is other ways that we can say it in a school. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying, you know, these are other ways that we can use. What fears do you think that teachers might have with translanguaging? I recall I was a science teacher. I taught eighth grade science to all non-English speaking students. And I, there was always a balance that I was trying to strike between 
grading my students for content without penalizing them for any grammar. And at the same time, wanting to grow, you know, wanting them to improve in their English skills and what to accept and what not to accept. And also putting myself in a place where I'm speaking their lingo, so to speak. So what fears might a teacher have with translanguaging? In my experience, what I have seen, most of the teachers are afraid that when students are used their native language or their L1 that we call it in academics, we may not be able to have control of the language of what we're hearing if the student is correct. One of those things I think has to do with teacher control again. So if I understand what you're saying, I know for, for a fact that you're doing it. Let's say, for example, in the example that you just gave, you know, the science is a very great way to do it. Science and social studies, especially science, has a lot of terminology that it's super, super similar to. That's super similar, yep. Yep. So the only fact it is the pronunciation in most of the facts because most of them are cognates. So the students can negotiate easily a lot of things if they read it, if they have the L1 already strengthened out and they said, okay, so I can translate in my head and do that, to do that. So by you hearing the conversations, by the teacher look, looking for concept knowledge, concept development, it is the best way of doing it. Maybe grammar, when we expect the students to write, may not be there yet, but that will be my job to help them out to work with grammar, sentence construction, syntax, to see what words to use, how they arrange in English. And this is how we do a cross-linguistic connection between one or the other. If you don't know the language, then ask one of your colleagues to help you out in this manner. And don't be afraid. We are all learners. And that's what I notice a lot of people that especially in the middle grades, that I'm a content expert. Therefore, I wouldn't like to share my fears with other teachers because they might see me as not. Right. And, and you know, I find myself, even at the college level, teaching ELL students that you may see some students, especially at the college level, getting a little annoyed. So I like to offer clues. I like to keep them talking and say, you know, yes, that's right. Give me more. You're trying to guide them through the, to the right path. You know that I, I don't, I want them to stay involved because oftentimes they're hesitant to talk, right? It's similar to my husband. He worked in a very poor school district and he would cut hair on Fridays. He'd bring their shirts home, their white uniform shirts home, and we would wash them. Because how they looked made a difference in how they learned. He couldn't get them to raise their hand or to interact with other students if they felt poorly about themselves. And I see language the same way. When you have students where you might not be the majority in that classroom, right? With whatever language you, or culture that you come with, and you're hesitant to talk and put yourself out there for the fear that other students are going to look at you, right? You're afraid, they may not accept you. So how do we address including students 
so they're not so hesitant in the classroom to participate. So here are two aspects of it. And I'm going to bring an author that I'm currently reading right now. It's a book. This book just came out. It's teaching readers, not reading. So I'm, I'm reading this. I love that title. Can, I know. Can I'm, you say that title again? You know what? I just told Amy the teachers, they should change the name for teachers. It should be student learners. What's your job? Student learners. That's my job is for students to learn, not to teach, right? Say that title again. It's teaching readers. I like it. And in parentheses, not reading. The author is Peter Affelbeck. I got caught and I'm so engaged in the book. I just started it two days ago. I'm almost halfway through. But what I learned is I took this book as from an ELL perspective, from an emergent reader, from someone like myself, you know, when I went to school. When we are looking at individuals, students, we're looking at strategies, skills, assessment, your worth a reading level, your worth an assessment point, you worth a number. And that's how teachers see students. Teachers brought up that point. So what about looking at the whole student, learning a little bit more about my students, where they come from? What social and emotional aspects of the students bring with them in order for them to be and behave the way they are in the classroom. They might be secluded because they may not be having a conversation with another language. They see somebody that has the same language, but they do have a conversation. There's a lot of things that may happen. So I, as a teacher, I need to look at those. So I think we need to look at children and students that walk in our classrooms, people, People who have experiences, people who have a language to express, it may not be the one that we would not want it to see, or maybe we are expecting a traditional student to have, but they do have something to offer. And that's my job as a teacher to look for that and bring it to the concept or to the content area or to the literacy area or math area that I'm teaching at. So looking student as a whole. We are talking to Adelphio Garcia about translanguaging and looking at the whole student and what they can bring to the classroom. I want to follow up with what you were just saying about the whole student because it also brings up some issues that are just hidden or implicit biases that we bring to the classroom as teachers. How can we address the assumptions that teachers might have about students' intelligence based on the language they bring to the classroom? What are some tools that we can help offer? Well, there's a lot of tools, but as a teacher, we need to look further into ourselves. I know there's a researcher, Yolanda Celia-Ruiz, and she actually talks about the archaeology of self. She has a visual of a shovel. And in that, using that shovel to uncover all of the experiences that you had before and clear them out so you can say, you know, this experience make me think this way. Just like you were saying, you know, make me think of a student as less intelligent. 
And that could be because of the social media, that could be because our news, because our politicians or whatever. I just don't want to point out anything. But I may have with a preconception of who these students are. So by excavating and taking those feelings out, that makes me evacuate all of that and see the student who it is, the one that I have in front of me. So I can start believing and helping the student to motivate. So in this book that, you know, that I was just mentioning with Peter Affelbeck, he's talking about the self-efficacy. Self-efficacy, you know, what is it that strategies this student can do for himself in order to move forward? So what motivations that may be there in order for the student to, to move forward? It may not be the content yet, but then I got to look at those affective parts of the student in order for me to break through. So just thinking of what Yolanda said about the ecology of self and thinking of myself and thinking of what the students bring, I think we can open up spaces and erase those images that we have about certain individuals because of language, because of culture, because of physical appearance, or because of many other things that we usually have with stereotypes. I want to point out to our listeners the word that you have continuously brought into this conversation, and that's the word yet. So often we forget mm-hmm. and we don't remember, and students too. Yet is so powerful. It's a three letter word, but it's not I can't, it's I can't yet. And I just want to point that out to our listeners. Thank you, Amy. That is very powerful. What would you say, or what would even Yolanda say, offer as strategies that a teacher might employ to show that they value students' culture and language? She uses the same type of thing to see, you know, what experiences could be good or bad that you had with that specific group of students that you're encountering. And looking within yourself, That's what the title is so powerful, Archaeology of Self. What is it that you can uncover out of that? Did you have experiences when you were growing up? Did you have a bad relationship with someone 10 years ago of that group that made you feel that way? And you're carrying, you're continually carrying that sentiment with you. What is it that it is in your past or within you that is not allowing you? Or it could be even family influences. Uh Like, for example, you know, you're in a family and say, you know, they talk about this specific group being so-and-so. So you kind of absorbed the same thinking because you're part of that family, you're part of that group. And you use that in order to judge or to give people an a a tag or a stereotype. Right, right. One of the things that I learned very early because I was trained as a science teacher, not an ELL teacher. And because I spoke Spanish, I started teaching Spanish science in Spanish. And then I learned very quickly, my students, they were going to church. Most of them had come from Mexico. And because this was eighth grade, some of them had been out of school since sixth grade. And they had essentially stopped their education while they were in Mexico. And now they come to the U.S. and they're starting all over again. So I had some 15 and 16 year olds in eighth grade 
And so one of the things I learned was with homework. They weren't getting their homework done on Wednesday. And I found out they were going to church. You know, why isn't anyone turning their homework? Well, my homework was not important. And that's what, how I started to look at it. It was my homework. It wasn't their homework. And so number one, it had to become theirs and not mine. And then for me to value them, Wednesday didn't become important anymore. So we won't have homework on Wednesday because that's not what's most important for them at that time. So I was just trying to value and make a connection to them. And I was very, very intentional about making sure that my students receive the same newsletters, no matter how many went out in the school, which is a lot, that my students receive the same newsletter in their language so that their parents could feel included. And some of the school improvement plans I worked on, I recall saying, you need someone in the office that speaks X language or Y language because the parents won't call if there's no one there that can embrace them, that can speak their language. So I think that there's a number of ways as teachers and administrators that we can show that we value the student's culture and their language. You are absolutely right. And you brought out a couple of points that it had to become from you, from the desire of your responsibility as a teacher, as an educator, to provide the best for your students. So you took it upon yourself to find out about the religious practices. And as you said, you know, it became your homework. Socially, you know, they, those are kind of activities that families embrace together because there's always a strong connection to your family in the Latinx community and in other ethnic groups too. So by saying that, you know, you took it upon yourself to say, well, you know, let me find or go beyond or what the scope of this classroom is. Let me step out into the community, get to know the families, get to know my students a little bit more and look at it as a systemic part when you say, we need somebody in the office that can open up that window or that mode of communication to let the families come in and hear them. So it is part of us as teachers to be proactive and to look for the ways that we can allow students to come in and families and community as well. And not be fear about it. And I think that fear, even if you don't speak the language, that fear really rubs off on the children in the classroom. They then don't have ownership of the material in the classroom or the ability to express themselves honestly and openly because of the issues with language. But when there's that openness, it also gets to trust. So if I'm asking my students in my classroom to create a podcast or other kind of spoken project, and I'm not trusting them to be doing the work that they're supposed to be doing, then that is a breakdown in the classroom community. But if I am allowing and, and being open to translanguaging and the other options for them to express their content knowledge, then that classroom community can only get stronger. You're right, you're right. I was watching a webinar you know, about a month ago and they were talking about when teachers do not speak the language of their students, how can you open up 
the, win the, the doors for translanguaging. And that was exactly one of the strategies that they said. They said that trust is one of those things that you have to learn and develop within yourself first. Because you know, if you don't speak the if you don't speak the language, then find somewhere you can trust that can help you out. And I'm sure schools are resourceful in that because there's when we see emerging bilinguals in the schools, there's usually someone else in the school that speaks the student's language. If that is the case that you may not have anyone, then you will have a student that you can trust. So the levels are different levels of that of finding the trust, uh -huh. even if you don't speak the language, but you just need to be proactive and not let go because I don't think it is, it is a good practice to, to let students go. Right. I have a question for both you and Amy. Amy, I know you have an issue with the word melting pot. So I want to hear from you first about your issues with the word melting pot, because we used to use that a lot in the United States. And Adelphia, I want you to talk about instead of assimilation or melting pot, what would be a better way for teachers to honor the backgrounds and better develop their learning, you know, instead of assimilation? Is, is that the goal, assimilation? Amy, let's go with you first. Let, what are your issues with melting pot? It's such a such a fun word, right? Fun right. It, it, so I think I first heard the term melting pot when I, when I was in fifth grade. And so I'm thinking about this big cauldron that, you know, you kind of stir things around. But when I think of melting pot, I think of precious metals being put into this melting pot. But do you know how high the temperature would have to be to actually melt precious metals? That's extremely hot. Well, that sounds dangerous to me. It sounds dangerous to put something into high pressure, high heat in order to melt everything together. I just think- And then you end up with one piece. I used to give my students the analogy that of this melting pot and I would give, they would go around the room and tell me their favorite candle vanilla and lilac and you know mine is purple and it's this smell and so we would have a list of candles by description and I said we're going to put them all in the melting pot heat it up like Amy says and we're going to create one candle what do you get Amy when you do that that just sounds disgusting I know I you get one, ugly, one ugly smelly candle and then so then I say okay we're going to make beef stew and everyone gives me a list of what they put in their beef stew. And then what do you get? Oh, no, that sounds yeah. very good. That sounds yeah. very good because you've got the different flavors uh -huh. that come together. You still see the carrots. You still see the pieces of meat, however you make your beef stew. But I can see that you would still recognize some of the different flavors, I think. Yeah. So I, that does make it more appealing, perhaps, but they're not melted together. Right. You know, like if we sing together, you know, we can put our things together, our gifts together, and yet I'm a alto and you're a soprano and we make beautiful music together. We're making all these analogies. Yeah. What's your thought about assimilation and 
And what does that mean to you? And what's your perspective? I remember that melting pot term that it was used a long time ago. And, and I remember the same type of thing that, what are we living in? Are we living in some kind of, I don't know. But anyway, in terms of assimilation, it would be something that, that I've seen a lot. Because the idea when we start from the melting pot to later on that was used the term of assimilation, because I think the idea was to melt everyone together and end up an American person. Forget what you bring, forget who you are, because you're melted, you're mixed all together. So now you become American. So I think at the time they brought in assimilation because I'm gonna say something, what one of my teachers said when I became a principal, she said to me, you want me to teach this as students? And I, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, what are you talking about? And, and she said, well, they looked like they just crossed the border, but everything washed off because they don't want to be Mexicans. What so, do you say to that? Like, how do you address that kind of issue? Like, what is your response? Well, I had to contain myself and I said, I'll get back to you later on. <laughs> Good response. And then, you know, when I thought about it, because I was upset about the different thinking. That's what I, I, I told Joy earlier. You know, we have to think as teacher first, and then, you know, we have to think of the students. At this point, I was thinking as an administrator and how to handle both, because I had both in the classroom. The fact of the matter was that the type of students, because she was an upper grade teacher, is that these students were asked and were given that assimilation kind of thing that you are in the United States, that you have to speak English and you need to speak English. Tell your parents to speak English with you at home. But the parents didn't do that. The kids didn't do that. So when they came in, they have no language. They have not developed the Spanish, not developed the English. So the teacher was going through a difficult time trying to get the students engaged in conversations about the concepts that she was working with. But her lines when she was actually teaching said that, remember that you are in this country and you're going to grow up here and you're going to end up your life doing here. So you have to speak the language. So the underlying message there is that forget who you are, assimilate and become one of us. You may not look like one of us, but you know, you're going to become like one of us. But and we are so many pieces. We are lots of identities. And so we can be American. Let's put quotes around that. We don't know what that means, but we can also have our cultures and our ethnicities and honor them because we are diverse people. And I love the diversity in our classrooms because we can learn so much. We do. So Adelphia, we are integrating culturally responsive teaching and leading standards into our curriculum. This is a mandate from the Illinois State Board of Education, one that I actually embrace. And so I'm happy to see this. And with us preparing all educators, not just teachers, but school support personnel and administrators on culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. What would you, if you were still a principal, 
What would you hope to see in a future teacher now that we're developing, implementing these standards into the curriculum? I would hope to see a lot of materials reflecting the students that I service, the communities that I service, the communities that, that the school is located at. And I'm talking about curriculums. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about the people that live there. We educators, we come in from other places and we provide services to that community. They stay there. They interact with each other 24 seven. We are the ones who just interact with them from seven hours a day and then we leave. So what I wanted to say is culturally and linguistically relevant to the students is provide materials and methodologies that would approach the students culture and linguistic practices that students have of that specific community. So my job as a teacher is to find out what are the language practices, what's the culture of the, the students, what's the makeup of the community, and then select materials that will reflect those students in. Once I have all of that laid out, then let's move to the pedagogy. What is it that the research-based, evidence-based strategies that work best with this type of a students and community that I'm at? And let me give you just a short example because the school that I led for almost a decade was located in, in a very, in a port of entry in the city of Chicago. A mile away or two miles away, there was other schools that may not reflect the same population that I had. So it was a different ethnic group with different scores, with different set of values, with different culture, with different language. So their materials have to be according to that school. And I think we have come as a school system to standardize everything. And I remember, you know, when I was a principal, you know, I was told, you got to buy this curriculum, you got to buy this, this, you got to select out of this three options. But none of them reflected my student population or language of the population. So I have to do what was best and what the district mandate mandated at the time. And I'm hoping that these culturally relevant and responsive teaching and leading standards can make a wider and a broader picture for our candidates who are going into education and to see how to be more responsive to their students before they even enter the classroom. Yes, you're right. I remember I had a candidate one that she actually came in and she provided a good presentation of herself. She was a career changer from marketing to teaching. So she provided outstanding presentation of what the community look at the time and what she will do as an educator. It impressed me a lot of what her skills in marketing help her to promote herself as an educator. She ended up not getting the job because she, had offer, she was offered a job at a different school. But what I saw on that is that we do have skills. We do have the power of knowledge. We do have the power of research. And she actually took it upon herself to find out what the community looked like and provided a plan of what she will do as a teacher. 
So what I wanted to illustrate with that example is that future teachers or even teachers that are in school and support personnel, we do have the power to do that. Just to research a little bit about the community that we're serving, the students that we're serving, and we provide the best culturally relevant pedagogies that we can for that community. That might not be the look, the same one that you live in, but you're working to serve the community that you work for. It has been amazing talking to you today. We've talked about translanguaging, but we've gone deeper than that. We're talking about the soul, the teacher soul, and really exposing ourselves and excavating some hidden bias that we might have in order to be better people and better teachers. And I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I think, you know, we have a lot to offer because that's what we went into teaching because we wanted Mm -hmm. to help the students. We wanted to help children, but we're not only helping the students, we're also helping families, communities, and ourselves to grow as educators. Yeah, you give a whole new definition to lifelong learner and teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.